Welcome, friends. Last guy here, and it's time for us to have basically a podcast with two members of Asymmetric, the HMFIC, which I already forgot what it means, uh, what's what stands for, Zach Johnson, and Kevin Simmons, who does I think you that oh shoot I forgot all of a sudden it's what are your things again? Uh, I do production and design mostly. There you go. So you guys, like, I'm a big fan of uh, Kingdom of Loathing and West of Loathing. Like, a friend told me about Kingdom of Loathing, like, maybe five or so years ago, and I checked it out, and I played it. And, and for those who don't know, it's, it's a website, but it's like a game RPG website. And it's a lot of funny jokes in there, and you just, it's, it's an RPG. And if you, get, if you buy what it is, it is just absolutely hilarious. Like, the first joke, well, besides your classes, is the Oriole on a Mountain he goes, I'm going to show you the ropes. And he just shows you a rock with ropes on it. And I just died from that. Like, I love the first joke. And it's just a lot of funny jokes like that. A lot of people don't understand that that Oriole is himself the Toot Oriole. Oh, how did yeah. I get that? That's a joke that, uh, <laughs> that, that so the, the actual very first <laughs> joke is a joke that no one Ooh. gets. Because it doesn't, you just, when you when you read it, it doesn't sound, yeah. it doesn't sound like a dumb pun yeah. in your head. Oh my god. We like, to start every game. we like to start every game with a bird joke that most people miss. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, so I definitely missed the bird joke for West of Loathing. Which... Your, 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 uh, your pet crow, Russell. I don't get it. Yeah, sure. it's Russell. It's Russell Crow. Uh, oh my god. <laughs> That's it. That's all it is. <laughs> this is why Again, I love the Real games. simple, but yeah, nobody... I, I don't know how we managed to nail it twice. I, trying to do it on purpose... <laughs> For the next game is going to be way trickier, yeah. yeah. I, I love these games because it's there's jokes you'll get right away, there's references, and then there's just stuff you'll get 10 days later. Or which 10 I really enjoy. You know? Or yeah. 10 years. Like, I really liked playing Kingdom of Loathing and then eventually just petered off and then and then once the Loathing shows, I'm like, that sounds familiar. I don't... I'm like, oh! Oh wait, I know exactly what this is. And I was so excited once I realized what it was. And I'm just so happy it exists. It's really fun and enjoyable. I like it a lot. Uh, my favorite joke, just straight up, the first thing I saw was I went to options to do graphics. The good, the bad, and the ugly graphics setting. Yep. I love that joke. I, it's, it slayed me right then and there. And Stupid Walking is my favorite thing. Whoever came up with Stupid Walking, I just giggle for minutes. Just the different blocks you get. That cracks me up every time. Yeah, that's Wes, uh, Wes Cleveland, the animator. I, I I asked him, I don't know, a year and a half ago, I said, hey, can you do one goofy walk animation that we can just put in there as a joke? And he came back with, he's like, how about 20? Like, okay. <laughs> and then uh, every time he had spare cycles, he would just add more to it. And he just kept outdoing himself. Well, we got real lucky wonderful. with him. I never turn it off. It's, my, it's just hilarious while you're going. It's just great. And I just, out of curiosity, just, I'm sure you've been asked this many times over there. Just how did you go, just go about doing Kingdom of Loathing? Well, I, uh, I had a job. I had a series of jobs as like doing sort of web database development stuff and a little bit of non-web like Microsoft Office uh, database app development in my like professional life beforehand. And I kind of realized at some point, oh wait, I know enough stuff that I could just make a web game that was sort of, I, I kind of, I was inspired by games from like when I was in high school uh, that I played on BBSs. Uh, there were these sort of asynchronous, one person would play at a time, 
uh, games that you would play just just, uh, you know, over a, over a modem, just text only stuff. And I kind of wished that there was more stuff like that on the what was then the modern web was now like more than half of the history of the web ago. Uh, but uh, oh, but, you know, there wasn't much. So I just decided to make one. And, uh, you know, it kind of explains a lot of the choices. Like it was written just as well as I could write and it was programmed just as well as I could program and it was drawn just as well as I could draw. And I think uh, that the one of those that was actually a strength was maybe the writing that the others were <laughs> the others were pretty passable. The drawing has definitely oh. become its own its own style and has, has sort of blossomed into its own like aesthetic choice. Yeah. Having done it for a long time, I think it's definitely solidified into it's, it's way more consistent than it used to be. And it's uh, yeah, it feels like a style now rather than a limitation, which I guess is good. You can't help it. I, you know, it's like Malcolm Gladwell said, if you do something for 10,000 hours, you will accidentally get better at it. You stuck with it forever. Yeah. That works out. And then uh, how did uh, Kevin get into the picture? I, uh, I actually started as a player of the game. Uh, I, I wasn't oh. there at the very beginning. Um, and it was about about six months or nine months after the game had come out. Uh, I started, I found out about it uh, and started playing and then got through the content. There wasn't nearly as much at that point. Uh, and then um, <clears throat> I was not really employed at the time. So I just spent a bunch of time trying to break the game and sending in bug reports and eventually uh, sort of hacked my way into getting a job, I guess. Uh, yeah, I had forgotten to mark the phone number <clears throat> private on the domain registration for it. And there was some, there was like an emergency. I, like I was out at the bar one night and there was this problem that had leaked out and became publicly known and was causing problems. So Kevin just called me uh, and I went home and fixed it and then just talked to you know, just sort of became friends and then uh and then i went to i went to boston from arizona to visit him and we ended up just like making an arrangement for some contract work and then that just eventually turned into kevin being this sort of uh, asymmetric mvp <laughs> he his title is producer but he also like runs all the business stuff and he does the overwhelming majority of like the qa and uh and uh balance testing for for kingdom of loathing and you know putting numbers on stuff and uh a lot of uh a lot of complicated puzzle design and stuff like that so it's really kind of does a little bit of everything kevin and i i think have the least specific jobs of anybody like riff is riff is designer mostly writer wes is animator victor's programmer uh ryan does the composition and sound design and uh uh chris moyer does the the back-end tools and the programming stuff he, he he does a lot more content stuff for kol uh, than for west of loathing but he's uh all of our tools for developing west of loathing look a lot like the tools for making kingdom of loathing there yeah. it's just this kind of web interface uh that's very very crude looking but it's just exactly it's the way that we're accustomed to working so uh so that that wandered off on a weird tangent (laughs) i like it though um a question is as far as like the the writing goes is it is it all him or do you guys just have random ideas or jokes and that gets in there as well it's i'd say that in west of loathing and probably kingdom of loathing at this point it's about 75 percent riff 25 percent me he he definitely writes almost all of the dialogue and I write almost all of the descriptive text. Um, and other than that, like writing for like when things happen and they're just being narrated to you in the environment, that's, that's a pretty even split, but, um, he definitely specializes in dialogue stuff. And I like the just item and effect descriptions and interactions and stuff is almost entirely me. Um, 
but yeah, just because of the distribution of the actual writing in the game, it ends up being overwhelmingly mostly him. He wrote all. The, he wrote all the spittoons. Yeah. So he like all of the stuff. That, <laughs> the all of the stuff that people note about West of Loathing is stuff that he wrote. Like he's uh, he's our sort of like secret comedy weapon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the spittoons are just oh wow at the spittoons. I can't help but do. I it's just look closer and then do all the things with spittoons. Those are just hilarious to me. Really enjoy that. Yeah, people love them. Uh, I, like for me, it's like I feel like the games personify like a more a modern version of like airplane and naked gun and mel brooks movies like that's how i feel about them and it just i just really they're just hilarious i really enjoy them there's so many jokes coming out of them it's great thank you for saying so i think we're we're less well it by not being overtly political at all we are less overtly political than than mel brooks but i think uh i think airplane is a good touchstone i'll uh, i'll definitely take that it's uh <laughs> okay you know just that that sort of like I don't know. I think the kind of absurdist comedy of the 70s is what I grew up steeped in. And so it's, uh, you know, that that kind of stuff that the naked gun, that kind of thing, just it can't help but inform my sensibilities. And Riff is about the same age. Blazing Saddles, I think. Yeah. That we we get referenced to or in, in yeah and i think though that's more like you know definitely blazing changed. saddles is definitely like a movie about racism and that's like True, th yeah. that's just not a thing that we would do mm. right so we've, we've just sort of i can i can understand the comparison but i think it is fairly superficial just as then it's a silly western um there i mean there's a little bit of of uh ill feeling towards goblins in the game right and that becomes a thing that you can subvert or interact with right yeah we don't really like ham it up though right sure. like we don't we don't do the thing that i feel like a lot of games would do where it's like they make you feel guilty about doing it because right. like, it's like it's all so goofy that you can't really like you can't really have stakes that high you know we can't we're not going to be able to like emotionally manipulate the player in a negative way i don't think without it seeming really clumsy just because it's so like goofball yeah it's so it, it would be it would be dissonant with what everything looks like so i mean we we, we kind of the the serious parts of it and the spooky parts of it are kind of have to be a little sparing uh and not and not like i don't know we're not gonna we're not gonna be able to pull off a like uh spec ops the line in the, in this engine you know like it just, and and luckily we don't want to do stuff like this like the the you know the the kind of silly tone is what we're going for and, and it's i think in some ways we got a little bit lucky with west of loathing that the world turned into garbage over the last couple of years because i think people were really hungry for something that was just kind of light kind-hearted entertainment uh, or at least I, at least that's how I justify potentially having wasted my time instead of trying to do something to actively improve the world. Huh. You're right. I never really thought about, uh, Mel Brooks movies as more political, but now I'm just thinking about each film. Like, yeah, there's, there's Ben's to them. Never really thought about that. I mean, I guess Spaceballs, not so much. I mean, it's maybe like anti-commercialism in a, in a way, but that was also kind of later period Mel Brooks. I think in the in yeah. the seventies he had more to say. Yeah, I remember uh, when it comes to Spaceballs, he did all that capitalism stuff because it was Lucas said with his blessing they weren't allowed to do any merchandising. 
Right. Yeah. He, he made they fun could, of they, all could, of they could parody whatever they wanted. They could they could make fun of Star Wars to whatever extent they wanted to and not have to worry about getting sued. But they were not allowed to sell a drop of merchandise for okay. Spaceballs as part of that deal. And so it's like, man, even that even that story is a good like illustration of the stuff that that he was making fun of with that movie. That's pretty good. That's for sure with it. So you're saying all the writing comes from, I think you said Riff with that one. And because he just comes up with some pretty funny characters and just backstories and everything. Like, like you have that goblin, which I didn't even know until like the third run, you could actually recruit the goblin. Yeah. Yeah. That's the idea. Yeah. Like that is so interesting that this is what I really like about uh, West of Loathing for sure is there's multiple ways to do things. And like just straight up use the fungicide on, on the goblin, just took out the goblin the first time. I just didn't really think about that. And like, then I remember there's that book. And so, cause usually the goblin's the first thing I did, but this time I, did, yeah. I got the book and, and then I talked about that's, oh. that's on purpose. We put, we make it so you probably encounter it in the wrong order. And then it's not until the second playthrough that you maybe realize, Oh wait, what if I, cause you, in order to get into the doctor's house, you have to go see the goblin and then walk away from him. And most people just don't do that. Right. Most people just like, they walk into a room and that room is just a to-do list and it's like destroy or loot everything in here. And, uh, yeah. yeah. No, so that that was over time. When we first started, we were really shooting for making the game like super, super replayable. And we ended up doing because we started trying to make. Like the way that random encounters and location discoveries and stuff happened, we were like, let's make every playthrough very different. Right. Right. And then we ended up kind of like, well, maybe we shouldn't do that because then there ends up you end up kind of running out of stuff to do if we pace it that way. And it was a little too sparse. Yeah. And so we ended up it ended up being a little more samey than we originally intended. But like the partners storylines and their commentary are different. And I think especially if you're trying to go even a little bit fast, the game does bear out a couple or three playthroughs. And so like the, the design of that, of that sort of hidden partner was definitely a reflection of like, we expected people to play through it more than once. And so I don't know, you know, a lot of people do, a lot of people don't. And I think either way, it's uh, either way, it's a pretty good experience. I'm fine with somebody just like playing four or five hours of it and saying, all right, I beat that game and it's over, you know, and then maybe they talk to one of their friends and they say, Oh, did you see this? Oh no, I didn't. Hey, that's great. Now we have funny stories to share. (laughs) My favorite interaction is is when somebody finds out from somebody else that that stupid walking exists, that they played through the whole game and didn't realize it. And then they go back and they're like, oh, my God, there's this huge thing that I just didn't even notice in the game. Like that's we hit it in that early area specifically so that people would not find it and that there would be sort of that like one of the things that we, we grew up with and miss is the like the notion of like the playground banter where you would like play a game and then you go to school the next day and talk to your friends mm-hmm. about it and like share stories and so that we were hoping that at least some of that would come through with west of loathing yeah there's fun discoveries like uh it feels like a reward for taking the time to just look at things repeatedly because <laughs> like i forgot all like i played it when it first came out and then i played it yesterday to refresh on the game and I forgot where I got Stupid Walking. So I'm like, oh, here's a bookshelf. I'm going to read a bunch of these. These look funny. And like, oh, I got Stupid Walking. Oh, that's how I got it last time. And it's it's a fun reward to get that. And I'll do that where I just look at all the things in the shelf and like Fort Cowardice, I think it is. They'll at a point just say, you're reading the same thing over and over again. Why are you still reading this? <laughs> like, like when it points stuff out, out like that. What 
a, a reminder, like the game reminds me in a way of Fallout, the original. And I played that game so many times over and over. And, and so it gives me that feel that, yeah, you can do this game over and over because you have three classes and you also have different ways you can do things like you can do honorable, you can be dishonorable. And then you, of course, have the partners and the goblin is a nice surprise if you didn't realize it the first time. So there's quite a few things there. And it is a game worth replaying just for the old jokes again and again, because some of them I just really enjoy. Like the Spittoons, descriptive of that, or the silliness of uh, Shaggy Dog Cave. <laughs> yep. Is going through all those plaques. That's that's also like, Riff's, Riff's creation, yeah. <laughs> I, that's, so, that's so good. It's like, this guy's recounting everything they went through in just minute details. Like, okay. And you're like, okay, what's this going to lead to? It's like, oh, they got the treasure. Then, oh, okay, that's that's it. That's my reward. Did you? You didn't, you didn't actually. You didn't actually find the. Uh, there is an item that you can get. Oh. Out of there, uh, if you if you carefully read the like third plaque from the end, it'll uh, it'll mention a place that you can go, and you end up you end up getting a little gag oh. item for it if you want to. Oh, just to, shoot. just then... to spoil that, you know. <laughs> But we deliberately put it on the third oh. one from the end because we figured, all right, people will read the first couple and then just start walking past them and then go read the last one. And <laughs> you know, that's a valid play style. But uh, we're not yeah, going to reward that kind of lack of completionism. <laughs> yeah, I started skimming the last couple. Let me, let me, how much longer is it going to go? And I started skimming like in that. So I missed the detail right there. So there you go. Yeah. Because that one, that cracked me up. Those are, that's a funny one. And just like even... There's just jokes that I could just recount because they were funny to me. Like the poker, the first poker game, the tutorial area, where you just say, I win! And they just believe you because they don't know what they're doing. It's just, it's just wonderful. It's, it's just a fun game. I'm wondering, uh, what are lessons learned from developing a game after King Loathing and then doing Bust of Loathing? Huh. Um, I think that something that we found over time is that if there is, if there is some gameplay element that we can't figure out what to do with it if there's a puzzle that we can't figure out how to design a satisfying version of it it's okay to just replace it with a dumb joke because that's kind of what people want out of it and it's like the it's easy and it gives you a lot of bang for your buck in terms of like it not taking much effort to <laughs> it's easier to make a dumb joke like i kind of wish that like i spent a bunch of time building out the system for playing poker in dirt water once you once you get to the main town in the poker room in the saloon and it's like you know none of that is as funny as the randomly generated poker rules on the poster and i spent so <laughs> much time i spent so much time on that and i could have just written three funny interactions that you go in there and you play you do three things that are kind of like the tutorial poker games and then you leave right and that would have been fine and it would have been less work and it's like it wound up not being all that interesting as a as a mini game, and most people just ignore it. And so I feel like I don't know. I, I would probably elect not to do something like that specifically in the future as a result of learning that lesson. Well, I feel like it's hard to know. It's hard to know in advance what is going to stick with people. Um, a lot of the things that we did super last minute, like um, so that that quality settings, the good, the bad, and the ugly that you mentioned earlier was very much something we did on in the last week of development before we released. Wow. Uh, and the um, there's an option, the colorblind setting was literally the last day before release. Zach just sort of threw that in there. Um, so like, there are things that people will note and find funny or interesting that 
almost were afterthoughts in a, in a way and stuff that we spend a bunch of time on didn't necessarily resonate with people. And you have no idea going into it. I think what is going to stick and what isn't. So I think the idea is just do a bunch of things and do them all well, but, but don't, nothing is super precious. Nothing is, um, don't like be like beholden to your particular darlings. Just just sort of try to make things that are fun and listen to the playtesters and see what they're what they're liking and, and resonating with, and then sort of try to reinforce those things. Um, which is not a thing that we do much with Kingdom of Loathing. Kingdom of Loathing is very much a put it out into the world, and people either like it or they don't. But we're not we're not testing things. Um, West of Loathing had a long beta cycle, which was which was nice. We got a lot of feedback over the production of that and changed a bunch of things because of it. Um, which is a nice change of pace from, from Kingdom of Loathing. And especially, I mean, the, the opening sequence, the, <clears throat> the Boring spring stuff is, I think, probably the most sort of polished and rich part of the game, just because that was also our demo when we would go to trade shows. And so we would just watch thousands of people play it. And if they, if, if like we saw a bunch of people try to do something and it didn't like work or give them a joke, it'd be like, I wish put a joke there. Right. And so that just got so much iterative testing relative to, to the rest of the game. And that is, I don't know what to do with that. Like <laughs> maybe next game we could just divide it into chapters that are like real individual and like demo all of them individually over time. Oh, so wow. that, I mean, I don't think that's a good idea because then we've just like basically revealed the entire game before it comes out. But, um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe doing some more focused, like in-person play testing is something that we could do for the next part for different sections. But, but I think sections. you're right though. It's the, it's the hundreds of playthroughs, thousands of playthroughs that really lead to the polish. Yeah. And so there's no, there's, there's not a good way to do that for the entire game. You yeah. Know? But, um, well, I mean, just you could spend a bunch of money or time. That's true. Uh, something that was really something that was really nice about working on West of Loathing that we kind of had to constantly remind ourselves of was this is a single player game. We don't have to worry about a decision that we make unbalancing the economy, or we don't have to worry about a bug that one person exploits ruining somebody else's experience of the game. So, like, it was it was a lot easier in some ways, but it was it was tricky for us to like get out of the mindset of working on what's basically an MMO. Um, and so that was just it, it was nice, uh, all told, to be able to just like, oh, you know what? It doesn't matter if this gun is slightly too strong. Like, it just means people will be people will feel slightly too awesome when they're using this gun <laughs> in combat, and that's fine. That's how I feel about it with Susie. Like, uh, running into so many cows, she's just doing double my damage right now. She is yep. wrecking things. She's just, wow, she's strong. And, well, she hates cows for a good reason, so. Yep, yep. It's just like the joke, the cows came home. Just, wow. Um, uh, I have not encountered what comes up next with a doll when you feed it blood, but I'm really curious how that's going to go. <laughs> but that, uh, just for, for listeners and just saying I have interest, uh, that's what I've learned from a lot of developers I've talked to is just, the more playtesting they've done, the more they learned. Like, I've talked to uh, Ian Flood from uh, Yacht Club Games, who did Shovel Knight, and they're like, we, but just having tons of people play the game, we saw where to put the checkpoints. I think a lot of people feel like they don't want to, and this is an instinct that we dealt with, like, you don't, there's a part of you that feels a kind of ownership over a creative project that makes you not want to show it to people until it's done. And you just have to get over that. Like you have to show it to people constantly throughout the entire process, or it's going to be bad. Like, 
unless you're incredibly lucky. Yeah, yeah. If you're very, very lucky, like if you, you know, if you, if you, if you like Mozart, get your games directly from God, and they're just perfect. They're just perfect as soon as you commit them to the engine. Um, and and that was the thing. Like we we made another game between between when KOL came out and when we started working on West of Loathing that we just didn't do enough testing. You know, and if we if we had, there are a lot of like rough points in it that people would have told us about, and we would have canceled the game because it was too late to fix them. But, uh, well, but if we'd started doing it early enough, yeah, if we'd started doing it earlier, we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have ended up wasting so much time and, and, and gotten the, gotten some good feedback from people that were not afraid to hurt our feelings. Yeah. I think we would have probably made yeah. a bunch of changes. And so it's, uh, you know, I understand the desire to not do play testing because a, it's easier to not do something than to do something. <laughs> and B it's like, it's very like, for a long time, for the first like three or four trade shows that we did, it was so emotionally draining to just sit there and watch people like the worst thing that ever happened was. And this happened over and over and over again. Somebody would sit down, play the game for like a couple minutes and then just kind of shrug and wander off. And you're like, oh, no, my <laughs> my baby sucks. You know, but then that was like. Only like yeah, it's not very many people. You know, yeah. people and so, like, for the most part, it started to feel really good because it was like, oh, wow, people start playing this and they don't want to stop and they're laughing and smiling the whole time. We're on to something here. So, like, let's let's look at the like, what are the things that people especially like? Let's do more of that. What are the things that people ignore? Let's don't do that. You know, like, what are the times when people are like, what do people do expecting a joke and then they're disappointed when nothing happens? Let's put a joke there. Like, and that was just kind of the entire process. So it's just, it's finding just where to put things as you're showing it off and everything. It reminds me of like the Marx Brothers. That's what they did. They did their road show and every day they noted where people laughed, where people didn't laugh. And then in the end, they made this show at the end where people laughed every beat and then they made those into the movies. And so it's interesting just hearing just multiple developers like you guys and others, just like, yeah, the more playtesting they do, the more they find, which is, I guess, makes sense. Yeah, I mean, that's what I hear from, uh, like, I like to, I like to read a lot of uh, comedians' biographies and listen to interviews with comedians about, about the way that they sort of hone their stuff. And it seems like that's just, that's all stand-up is. Like, you tour doing stand-up shows at clubs to, like, develop your act, and, like, you just are constantly noting, like, which things landed and which things didn't land, and then trying to figure out, you know, well, was this just this particular audience didn't like this joke or did I deliver it incorrectly or is it just a bad joke? You know, do I do I need to just cut that and and focus more on the other material? And it's it's yeah, that being able to being able to just iterate like that is so valuable for making anything better. Yeah. Just out of curiosity, um, it was how much of the team was going around showing off uh, the West of Loathing? Um, it was typically just me and Kevin um, or sometimes just me. Yeah, sometimes just Kevin. Kevin. Kevin went to the first PAX by himself, um, but it, it's it's rough working. And I went to like PAX Australia by myself and, and showed the game there after after it came out. Though um, it's it's hard to do a trade. It's not you know. I mean, we're, like we're grown ups, we can do it. But it's <laughs> it's less pleasant if you have to like find a stranger to come watch your laptop so you can go to the bathroom every time. Then if but really with two with two people you can you can pretty much do it. Um, it wasn't, you know, it would, it, it comes and goes like the frequency of that kind of stuff comes and goes as sort of convention season, like the back, the back quarter of the year is where most of it happens. Um, and so it slowed down a lot. We were able to kind of take it easy for, for the first part of 2017. Um, 
I mean, take it easy with traveling so that we could focus more on, uh, although that said, what else, what, I don't even remember that whole time is such a blur of just doing nothing but working. Um, we went to indicate a couple of times. We did, a, we did several different passes, yeah. pass, pass West twice, pass East, um, pass Australia. Yeah. Pax, uh, Pax prime this time we were able to <clears throat> take a lot more people because we got, we both were in the indie mega booth and in the Pax 10. So we just got more badges and, and also it, it, like the fact that we were getting so much more exposure made it feel more worth it to like fly people out and house them to do that. So we had, there were like four of us, four of us showing the game there. And that was, that was really nice. And it was, it was nice to have more people, but it was not as nice to be spread across two booths. Right. So it was sort of, <laughs> Uh, came out in the wash, but um, I see a lot of other developers who don't, and this just, this kind of sucks. It sucks that sometimes you'll get the opportunity to show a game at a thing, but it will be so expensive comparatively to get there and have a place to stay. And it's, we've in some ways, you know, we didn't really have to worry about it because KOL was making plenty of money basically, right? So we are, we are accustomed to just sort of operating as a business with a certain amount of, of cushion financially, but like other people just don't have that option. And we also, we've been doing this for so long that we have a network of people that we can like crash on couches and stuff. If we're, you know, if we're showing in, in a lot of cities, there's like, we just have a lot more, more options than we would if we were just starting out. And uh, yeah, I wish that, I wish that there was more of a culture of shows that treated people who were showing games the way that like, academic conferences treat speakers where it's like part of this is like part of our budget is just flying you out and putting you in a hotel so that you can you can demo your thing and it's there's just so much of it and that people are so there's so many games and people are so hungry to show stuff so you're gonna get people who will will you know go into debt to do it and th those conferences don't tend to have a lot of money right because you can't you can't charge three hundred dollars to get into packs you know, actually, I have no idea what they charge to get into packs. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. Maybe they do charge $300 to get into packs, <laughs> but it's so valuable to show the game to people and see the way that, like, just to be forced to stand there and watch people interact with it. Yeah. Um, people who don't know anything about your property or know anything about you, so they have no preconceptions, really. Yeah. Like, you're never going to be able to find that, like, doing playtesting at home. You're just not going to be able to get... 300 strangers to play your game like maybe see maybe you could maybe 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 independent developers should just start like setting up tables on the sidewalk <laughs> in front and say hey you want to play this video game and then like huh. you know most people will flip you off but mm -hmm. the ones who do sit down and play you know maybe you'll get some valuable feedback from them local play testing yeah I, I am curious since you did do a couple uh paxes and uh, other places are just packs i guess or uh, PAX was the, the big one, but we also did IndieCade in LA um, and a couple of really small shows. There was uh, the Seattle Indie Games thing um, that we went to, and then there's a Drink and Draw with Pig Squad in Portland. Um, so we, we, we traveled mostly on the, the West Coast, but we traveled a fair bit. Okay, I'm curious if there was any like regional trends, like any jokes that landed with a certain group more, oh, huh. or gameplay stuff. <sighs> Not really. I don't think it's, you know, it's set in such a, it's the setting, like nobody is from the old West. Yeah. So the setting, you know, is not gonna, is not gonna like, I mean, there are people who like Westerns and people who don't, but I also kind of feel like 
the internet is sort of where the game is from and everyone who goes to any video game conferences also kind of lives on the internet so so i think it's reasonably universal at least in the kind of demographic that we're likely to likely to encounter there um but no, that's interesting i hadn't uh thought about regional yeah i hadn't really thought about the way that different people sure. would respond to it regionally because i mean i i spent from the time that i was in high school until like five years ago i lived in arizona so i was a lot closer to a lot of the sort of desert tropes but they're not super relevant to the understanding of the gags you know so it's um you know it's an interesting question okay yeah just because sometimes a joke will land wherever you are but i was just curious on that one another one is actually i'm just kind of curious what the next one will be if it's another loathing and if it's i don't like galaxy of loathing or sea of loathing i don't know Right now we're working on DLC and ports uh, for, for West of Loathing. Um, so we'll have, we've got three good sized add-on DLC chunks planned. Um, we don't know how long that's going to take, actually. It's, yeah, uh, we, this we, first we, one has taken way longer than we thought yeah. that it would. Uh, but I don't know what that means for the following this because we're also just like very tired. We Like <laughs> after August rolled around and the game came out, we were all just kind of mentally and physically exhausted from it well, and I mean, uh, the work kept kept going there was a, yeah. there was several months of just ongoing support yeah. and yeah um, bug fixing and stuff which is still ongoing but like there was there were two months i'd say after the game came out where we you still months. couldn't really relax yeah. yeah um and so yeah i mean it's we're still we're still like at least a year off from really starting on the next game, but it's definitely going to be a loathing game. It's definitely going to be in the same engine. Um, we haven't really fully committed to a, a setting or theme yet, but we have got a pretty good idea of, of what it's going to be. We're not going to go to space for the second game. That's, mm. that's kind of what everybody is expecting, but yeah. that, that is going to require better ideas for things than I currently feel like I have. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, yeah, no, it'll. I don't. I think for people who like West of Loathing, the next game will not be a disappointment uh, in terms of theme because I don't think the theme actually matters that much. I don't think that the story <laughs> actually matters that much because what you're what you're there for is the what you're there for is the goofs. I can imagine doing some sort of like small side project or something that was in space. Or yeah, but, yeah, but the but a full game I think it was probably going to be. Yeah, it'd be nice to it'd be nice to work on something smaller that we could figure out like what does space look like mm -hmm. in this art style because that is the thing that I just don't have a good idea of because it does not work at all on a black background, right? And so is space just white? I think space <laughs> might space might be white in with, with in black little, stars. Space is yeah, white with black stars, yeah. yeah. RIP David Bowie. <laughs> A question as far as the bugs go. Were there any, like, real nightmare bugs that, like, they just lasted for a long time or they just led to another problem and another problem, like Domino Effect or anything like that? You know, our programmer is so good that we did not have a lot of real significant problems, at least that bubbled up to us being really aware of them. I think he he had some stuff that he struggled with with Unity. Um there was a weird persistent issue that only ever happened to me uh, <laughs> that took us a long time to figure out how to fix. That was just some issue with the way that Unity's built-in sound processing stuff works. Mm. That it would only for me, only on, and it happened on every computer that I played the, the game on, 
but it never happened to anyone else on the team. And as far as we knew, it never happened to any other testers where the game would just, the sound would get real stuttery and the frame rate would tank. And it took forever to diagnose that because it was just like, I would just have to describe it to Victor because it was not reproducible for anyone other than me. Um, but that wasn't that big of a deal. You know, it was just like, oh, that's weird. We don't know how to fix that. And then suddenly he figured it out and fixed it. And <laughs> nobody's had to deal with it. They're not really bugs, but uh, getting the game performant on iOS was uh, was pretty tricky. Like we, we demoed on iPads and they were fine. Um, but trying to get it to run well on like the older like iPhone hardware has actually been way, way harder than we expected. Um, oh. and you, you would, you wouldn't think about it because it looks super simple, but our, our sprites are actually gigantic, like just huge textures and, um, storing enough of those in memory and swapping them out actually is, is a non-trivial task. Um, so that's been a little in modern, modern 3d engines, the way that they handle putting images on the screen is really not optimized for making this style yeah. look good <clears throat> and so the, the textures just have to be so much larger than you would expect them to be because otherwise they get shrunk down and compressed and are just extremely ugly um and so it it does not have like huge performance requirements but it has higher performance requirements than you would think uh, based on what it looks like um and so yeah there's the the, the technical the technical side of things has been way harder trying to get it running on phones than it ever was on PCs because it was just, we weren't pushing it very hard for that scale of thing. Like if you have like everyone who's playing video games on a PC has a pretty decent 3d card at this point. So, you know, it's, uh, we, we were able to target, yeah, I don't know, six, seven year old hardware and be fine on that. But with phones, you just can't, it's, you know, I am curious about uh, maybe a mechanic or a joke or something that did not make it into West Alone that you really wish you could have gotten in there. I don't think there's any jokes that that had to be cut because you can always just pile more jokes on. Um, <laughs> I kind of, you know, we never, we kept putting off a like huge pass through the game to try to make combat better. And so the combat ended up being pretty nominal. Like we just ended up settling on, let's just make it really easy so that it kind of doesn't get in the way of gameplay. And like, that was the one hit that it took in basically every review was that the combat was just sort of dull. Um, you know, I think the the system had a lot of potential. We just kind of were never in the mood to try to make it good. And then we ran out of time and just had to release it where it was. But if you look at like, I think like the fights in Fort Memoriam are pretty good. The ones where you're playing the the war game with the soldiers and the cows. Like, I think those are kind of interesting as puzzle fights. And that sort of demonstrates what the combat engine is capable of. We just didn't do. There's always this weird kind of tension between like, well, you want fights to be fun, but you want to be really generous with like character upgrades and stuff. Mm. And so we don't have any idea going into a fight, like how powerful the character is going to be when they get to that fight. And so erring on the side of it being easy means if you're being thorough about stuff, like the fights end up just being kind of a cakewalk, which gets a little tedious. Um, I don't mind it. I kind of like doing a little bit of boring grinding in RPGs. I, I find it sort of relaxing and meditative, but I know other people don't feel that way. So I guess, uh, I, I don't know. It should, it should have just been a JRPG <laughs> instead, of, <laughs> instead of a Western Western RPG. 
there were several things that got like mechanically simplified. Like in the beginning we were, I wanted it to be kind of like kingdom of loathing in that there were like doing muscly stuff, made your muscle go up and doing smart stuff, made your mysticality go up. And we had three different sort of flavors of experience points that you could spend, but that ended up just being really complicated and, and confusing to present to people. And so we ended up simplifying that quite a bit. Um, I forget what else. There were some other systems that kind of got simplified over time. The, there were pretty fundamental changes to the way that like combat resources worked. Yeah. Um, but nothing. There's there wasn't really anything significant that had to be cut for scope. There were areas of the game that we had planned that uh, we cut. Just yeah, they, just they, running out of time. But out. but we tended to cut the ones that we didn't have great ideas for because I mean those were the last ones to make, right? Were the ones that we like never really gelled. Uh, it's sort of design wise. Um, Theoretically, there were there were going to be a series of ghost towns, but it just made more sense to have one really complicated one instead. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um. It comes to well, yeah, because I remember in King of Loathing, yeah, each dad has their own kind of XP thing going on, and you just simplified it for West. Um, uh, I I want to ask this just just as a fan, favorite joke from King of Lo- Kingdom of Loathing from both of you. Oh, I don't remember that. Oh, uh, I think we were trying to come up with an accordion that would drop in the in the area where everything is palindromes, and Riff wrote accordionoid roca which is roca is a kind of like architectural marble uh <laughs> and so accordionoid roca is a palindrome and also describes an accordion that is made out of marble uh, and i think that is my that is basically my favorite thing that has ever gone into the what there's one the other co- joke the coffin lid is probably my favorite oh yeah that was i i can't say that because i think i'm the one that wrote that yeah, so no, it was like okay. you, know, no. it, it, <laughs> you have to look up the description of the coffin lid yeah um and the, oh, the I, so one that one joke that I wrote that I liked a lot is that when you're you're fighting giants and one of them one of the drops that you get is a is like a, a cherry tomato and it's said it's like a normal sized tomato to you but it's a, it's like you know it's funny how perspective works to you this is a giant tomato to a giant it's a tomato that you shouldn't eat because he dropped it in the toilet earlier like just subverting the you know the expectation that you're going to say to him it's a small tomato and to you it's a large tomato but that anyway that's they you know they don't always work for everybody <laughs> i like those trail off ones that's funny to me um i think also yeah, I in, in west in west of loathing i the, in the very first in the second room of the house there's a hat rack and if you click on the hat rack it just says nothing on the hat rack today and that is one of my favorite things that I wrote for West of Loathing because just because of its insinuation that like what would there be like is a hat rack like a to do list in this world like what in what world would there ever be anything on the hat rack today that you would say it like that that wouldn't just be somebody's hat which just wouldn't be unexpected it's I don't know nobody else likes that joke as much as I do but <laughs> one person one person screenshotted that joke and tweeted about it. And that made it. That made it all work. <laughs> nice. I got to ask the same for, of course, West of Loathing as well. Just favorite joke from those. I like uh, riffs when you when you're in the first Goblin City. If you speak Goblin, uh, you can sneak in the back of the of the theater, oh, and you can watch a Goblin deliver Hamlet's soliloquy in Goblin speak. And that is that it's is a masterpiece. Pretty good. Yep. 
It's, uh, yeah, Riff did oh, a great yeah. job of that. Um, that was one of those things. I mean, like, this was the thing that Riff pointed out that I hadn't ever really articulated about the way that he and I work together on, on writing this stuff. Like, I, I credit him with being, like, the mastermind behind that and that being, like, one of my favorite things in there. And then he pointed out, it was like, yeah, but it, it was your idea to have a goblin delivering Hamlet's soliloquy. Like, <laughs> I can write it and make it funny, but I would never have thought of that. And, like, when, like, my sort of setting the constraints for these things to happen and giving, like, broad strokes, like, this is what... Like, I wrote the very first Gary conversation, and I was like, oh, this is what goblins sound like. And then he just <laughs> took it and ran with it and just figured out everything that was funny about it in every subsequent goblin conversation. And it's, I think we, we work together in that way really, really well, because he doesn't necessarily want to like decide what's in a room, but once someone decides what's in a room, he can definitely make it all funny. Um, and so that's, uh, that's just, you know, that's just a skill set that we have developed in tandem from writing together for, 12, 13 years at this point. How long ago did wow. you riff? I think like 12 or 13 years. Yeah. 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 yeah that's something that, that's something that's hard to like when people are like, what, you know, what's your secret? Well, just do it forever. Like be, <laughs> be old and then you'll be pretty good at having a consistent style and producing a lot of it. Uh, if you get the opportunity, I recommend being successful 15 years ago. And then that success will <laughs> you the opportunity to practice what would otherwise be a very useless skill. Um, that's that's really good uh, but also for you kevin your your favorite joker uh it might just be the the petting cemetery the existence of the petting cemetery because that that just cracks me up every time i think about it <laughs> like i liked uh the 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 tutorial not the, tutorial, the prologue graveyard with david crockett he just showed up too early mm -hmm. yeah. like three centuries like i like that just the dave yard and just a bunch of dave jokes and there's just, just so many clever things and they all need to die. Yeah. Some of those are real Daves <laughs> that we know. And some of them are, some of them are celebrity Daves and you know, so it's yeah. all, it's an equal opportunity, Dave. Exactly. I just, it's such a clever game. And at the same, I'm kind of just selling the game for the viewers as well. Cause it's so good. It's very enjoyable. Like one, another favorite is gotta be, I can't remember the name of it right now with the, the, the spider danger spider. And oh, yeah. you can go, you can go fight these guys and arrest them, or you can let loose the spider and get the heck out of there and then come back and they've, they've been grabbed. And that's funny. Oh, hot dog. Like that's in that area too. <laughs> yep. It's like, turns out someone's already got a hot dog. So my place, my things are called hot dogs. I'm like, Oh my God. We had initially, what I wanted to do with that was let the player decide what the name of the product was that he Ooh. was making and then figure out a way to put that on the sign. But then we just knew that that, that was going to result in exactly. so many vulgar screenshots, mm. and we didn't want to make it look like that was the thing that we had put in the game. And so we eventually decided not to, uh, yeah. not to let people, <laughs> not to let people do that. But um, and that's that's one of those things that there are some very dumb Easter eggs because you can if you go in there and your name is Doug, that you get a different conversation. And if you go in there and, and, you, and your name is Dog, you also get a very different conversation. <laughs> but oh, like, that's great. Really, you have to like you'd have to yeah, make a whole new character. You'd really be doing it on purpose. Yeah. yeah it's, Luckily, it's fairly <laughs> early on. Like you can get there pretty quick if sure. you skip the tutorial. But uh, yeah. But yeah, no. We 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 really delight in hiding <laughs> stuff like that in there, and that's. I mean, that's the kind of thing, like, if we had infinite time, yeah. there could be so much more of that, you know? And so it's always, like, trying to figure out, like, well, like, 
is this funny enough to me to spend the time that it's going to take if only a tenth of a percent of the people who play this game are ever going to see this? And like sometimes the answer is definitely yes, and sometimes the answer is sadly no. Um, the, this is one of the benefits of also not having the game voiced is we can just fill it with just stupid jokes that just it wouldn't make any sense to pay someone to to say these words out loud. Um, but being able to just write them is very cheap um, and easy. So. Uh, I I do appreciate like just little things like that. That's just what makes a game better because it's just discovering things like that is always nice, and that's that's just a fun thing about RPGs. There's just so many. Sometimes there's just so many ways you can go about something, and there's so many jokes. And I'm looking forward to because this is the first time I I got the Goblin speak. Well, I'm using it. Uh, to I'm gonna check out that soliloquy now. Like once I get there, I'm gonna check that out because I'm really curious about that. Well, it's, do you have Gary, like, you can't have Gary as a partner. It's, it's a oh. situation, you have to, yeah, you have to speak Goblin. That whole branch of the, of the Gulch Goblin, like, initial questline thing requires you to speak Goblin, but not have Gary as a partner. Because if you Ooh. have Gary, because something that we wanted to do was, if you have Gary as a partner, we don't allow you to kill any Goblins ever. Uh, because we, we didn't want to, we didn't want to have to write you explaining that to Gary or Gary getting mad. <laughs> I mean... If it, we didn't want the partner to leave, and then we end up, you can, there is one circumstance under which you can make your partner abandon you, uh, but it is only one, there's only one case where that happens. And we could have just done a thing where every time we have a combat with a goblin, if you are with Gary, he leaves, but then we figured that would make people sad because this was like this unlockable partner, and it's easy to just accidentally get into a fight with a goblin if we don't stop you from doing it. Um, so yeah, that the non-combat way of dealing with Gustafson Gulch requires you to speak Goblin, but not have Gary. So that's, uh, because we figured there were going to be more people in that situation than people who had Gary as a, as a partner. Uh, and so the, the, there are other non-combat ways to complete the first leg of the quest. Um, that was also a thing that changed a lot over the course of development. We became way more focused on... Like, initially, I wanted it to definitely be possible to beat the game without getting in any fights, but over time, we started making it easier and easier and easier to get through the game without any fights. Like, just being able to straight up just outstat the rock monster in the in the first rail camp. Like, that was like, you know, let's just let people do this. Like, if they want to just find the right food and booze and, and equipment to, like, get their muscle extra high, let's just let them use that to win this instead of having to do the fight and like the game ended up becoming more and more supportive of nonviolent playthroughs to the point where like the majority of people finish that part of the quest the nonviolent way just because it's easier um and you know that's also another way to put a bunch more writing in right there's a bunch of different text that you get if you fight something versus uh, you know hornswoggle it or whatever and so that's another source of variety for multiple playthroughs so, uh, is it possible to pacifist the entire game, or mm -hmm. almost? Yep. yep totally. Oh, nice. There's some. There are some places that you can't go. Um, yeah. There's one notable, and I still have a, like a to do item. That right now there is no way without fighting the cows to get to Alexandria Ranch, and so there's a bunch of there's a bunch of plot stuff that you can't do. It, because if you're not fighting, and I like, I need to just make it so there's a non combat way to deal with. That, I just haven't done it yet. Okay. Uh, one nice thing I do like is the partner can be there to remind you of main quest information and side quests, which, that's nice you don't just have a just a journal on your character, just look up. 
we've, and... we've had a lot of requests for the journal. The journal was actually <laughs> so that was actually that was something that was cut. Yeah, we, we that's did have true. A journal. Huh. Yeah, I but we couldn't figure out. Riff and I couldn't figure out a satisfying way to to frame it narratively, like it because it seems like the kind of thing that we should lampshade if we're going to have it. Like, why am I writing all these notes to myself? But then figuring out how to structure that in a way that didn't just seem really forced it was like, well, what if what if we just used it as an opportunity to kind of add more flavor to the partner? Like if they just if they just became a, a kind of in world way of reminding you of stuff that you were in the middle of, then that just kind of it seemed it seemed kind of win win because it, it lets us characterize the partners better and not have to figure out what the UI for a journal looks like <laughs> and and do like what we wanted to avoid was putting ourselves in a position where we had to do a bunch of writing that wasn't funny because mm -hmm. we don't like doing that. And the players don't like encountering that. And I don't know that we could have sustained a funny tone for something as pedestrian as a quest log. And it's so easy to get wrong too, because especially with an open world game, it's hard to know all the different possible situations that a character can get themselves into and tracking all that and trying to account for it. Like, did you do this thing first? And now I can't write this sentence this way because uh, it won't make any sense because you haven't seen this thing yet or whatever. Like there's, there's so many different ways that things could go wrong that it's a lot easier to just have some, a single vague sentence that your partner says instead of some sort of significant exposition in a journal that tries to explain where you're, where you're at. That is actually something though that got a little bit that got a little bit shrunk for content for 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 scope at the end. Like we didn't personalize per partner mm. all of those. It's just like Pete says. Pete reminds you about. It's never them saying anything. It's just a dis a sentence describing them saying something to you. It's like Pete said. Pete reminds you that you told the chef you would get her knife or whatever, like that kind of thing. And that's just it. Just mad libs in the, the the name of your partner instead of like oh. actually writing a conversation for all of those which would have been better but most people wouldn't see it because most people wouldn't bother checking at every like every three minutes there's some new thing in the pool for them to say right. and you're not gonna you know you're just not gonna go go back in there for that all the time so that was the thing that i think was not not worth the effort that it would have taken to really flesh out would have been nice but no. One, one mention uh, before we get out is a mechanic I really like is the wander mechanic because that's not something I see often in RPGs open world like that where you just they'll just go rambling you'll find locations eventually which is pretty nice uh, but one thing just think like the RPG is very it's a very ref refreshing game with how open world is because it reminds me of classics like Fallout but it's a newer kind of feeling one and just the multiple ways you can take you can just handle uh situations i like that a lot like being able to violent your way through or talk your way through that's mm -hmm. really nice you feel really clever when you do the non-violent way i feel and just before the final question i guess just evaluating the games yourselves like how do you just feel about west of loathing at this point i'm super super proud of it i i think that you know i i can still look at it and see a bunch of flaws and a bunch of things that were missing and a bunch of things that could have been better. But like, that is not true to nearly an extent that I expected it to be like, I, and I, I think like a year in, I was pretty sure that the game was going to be a thing that I was going to be really proud of. Like it just became clear, like, you know what, this is pretty good. Like it might not sell super well, 
but this is going to be something that I am proud to show people. And, uh, yeah, no, I, I feel, I feel fantastic about how it came together. I, I just feel, I feel so grateful for the hard work that the entire team put in and also like how much fun it was to make. Like it was hard, but like we didn't get into any arguments really about anything. And like, we were la like our meetings are fun because yeah. we are just trying to make each other laugh. And like, that is where like the, the, that's where the, the, some of the best ideas in the game came out of was just us, you know, making jokes in meetings. I'm assuming you feel kind of similarly. Yeah, very much so. That's right. The, the camera froze and it's on a really funny oh, thing. Weird. You have to see it later. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but, um, uh, second last question. It had to be just because I'm a YouTuber. I have to ask what what is the importance of, um, I guess like YouTubers and influencers and streamers uh, to you guys? You think? I think that we were very lucky um, that we had a couple of very sort of large audience uh, YouTubers and streamers play the game in terms of getting the word out and exposing the game to a bunch of people. Um, Markiplier played the game. Um, and that, I think it, the first, he made a series of videos, he made 16 videos in, in total, but the first couple have like four, three or 4 million views. Um, and I, I don't know how many people found the game through that and then ended up buying it in terms of just like actual, like conversions, I guess you'd call those. Um, but it definitely became a thing that a lot more people were aware of. And just, just having an audience that's aware of your goofball game, I think, uh, makes a big difference. I imagine that the way that that pays off is in wish lists and yep. people buying it eventually when it's on sale. Yep. Like two years from now, when this game is two dollars, you know, for a weekend on Steam or whatever, people are going to be like, "Oh yeah, I remember that. That's that funny game that Markiplier played." And then maybe they'll buy it then, and they just would never have heard of it otherwise. So it's yeah, it's we did not expect this to be. Like, yeah, conventional wisdom is that like, all right, whether people stream your game is going to make or break whether it sells. And we were like, oh, well, because uh, <laughs> we did not imagine that this was a game that people would, like. It was so reading heavy that we didn't imagine that people would want to stream it. But the thing that we didn't count on was that, well, streamers like being funny mm -hmm. and if we let them read something in a funny voice that's already <laughs> funny so they don't have to think about what to say to make it funny, then they're going to be happy and their audience is going to be happy. And like it, it just wound up being a thing. I think partly I have to imagine that like any random game that Markiplier streams, probably you're going to then get a lot of other big to mid to small tier YouTubers doing it just because of the way that that sort of network effect works there um but we ended up just being you know it was i don't know that it ever like charted on twitch or whatever i think it was more of a it was more of a prepared youtube streamer thing because it doesn't the moment to moment like i think edit being able to edit your yeah definitely helps. makes it way better right because yeah. yeah like it's not nothing especially funny happens in the fights or like when the horse is moving around the map and stuff right so i don't think it is a super thrilling game to stream it doesn't do like surprising emergent stuff like a spelunky or whatever you right. know although it would be awesome to make a game that that did stuff like that it's just yeah. figuring out how to do that in our aesthetic is is tricky um but yeah it's it, it it's it's hard to say what the actual practical effect of it 
having this weird like meteoric streamer thing happening um but it can't have it can't have hurt certainly you know i think just in terms of it like you know we we managed to stay on the steam top sellers charts for way longer than we expected and i think that was probably partly owing to the fact that we were getting these really high profile people just telling millions of people about the game yeah um and that that was just that was just huge in sort of like securing our financial future for the company like the fact that we know now all right we can just keep doing this for quite a while like we can definitely make one or maybe two more of these even if they didn't make any money and we'll be fine um it's it's a real it's a real relief it's uh well i i I, there's so many questions i still want to ask honestly like this has been really fun but let's uh, end this out so the final question has got to be um advice for anyone I'd say, like, I'm really interested in hearing two answers. One for just, if you want to do something like, I don't even know, like Kingdom of Loathing, something like that, like a funny website, maybe game thing going on there, and also West of Loathing as a development, as a game. So, as far as... (sighs) The thing, the difference between Kingdom of Loathing and all of the other projects that I that I started that never got off the ground and that nobody ever heard about is that I just did it and showed it to people and put it out there. After like a week. Yeah. I worked on it for a week and then I just said, all right, Hey, anybody want to see this thing I'm working on? And then a few people did. And then those people were excited. And I'm like, Oh, well, okay. If these people are excited, I should work on it some more and tell some more people about it. Was there some way for them to talk to you in that early earliest version the chat i added the chat pretty early like in the first few days okay um and so yeah it was um so being able to have like instant feedback on a project very early on because i feel like there are a lot of developers doing similar things where they'll stream development of a game yeah um but this was a little different in the sense that it was a game that you could actually just go and play instead of just watching somebody working on it and that's hard that that's not something you can do in every medium you know it was but I think I think the better lesson there is, like, rather than trying to figure out how to make a game, I just took something that I already knew how to do and made a game out of it. And I was lucky that it happened to be, like, enough programming and, and you know, the, the, the stuff that I already knew how to do was lent itself pretty well to the specific kind of game that KOL was. But there weren't other things like KOL, and I think that's because... I didn't look at games and say, oh, what's a game? I'll make one. I looked at what I was capable of doing and made a game using those skills. And then that's why it ended up being a thing that people hadn't seen before is because it, you know, it just was accidentally. Well, there's that whole, there's that whole notion of like, to be a successful person, you take a a list of the things that you're good at on one side and a list of things that you enjoy doing on the other side and, and anywhere that those cross over, like any sort of connections there that you do that thing. Right. So if this is something that you enjoy and you're good at it, then there's also I need to find a better way to articulate this. But there is a thing. I think this is it it was some photographer that uh, some photographer that that wrote that it's the Helsinki bus station theory, which is that. If you. The, the the metaphor is about getting on a bus in the middle of Helsinki and then just like switching to a different bus and switching to a different bus and switching to a different bus. And you keep making choices until you've suddenly gone 
as far as it is possible to go in one very specific direction. And maybe there's no one else there doing what you're doing. And so just picking a weird thing and then just leaning into it really hard, like no one else is making big sprawling stick figure RPGs. And so (laughs) everything that we do in the context of a giant sprawling stick figure RPG is very like identifiably us. And it's, it's like unique, even though we're only doing like, we're just doing the thing that we do. Right. I mean, this is just, this is just the thing I decided to do, but then I just kept doing it and kept doing it and kept doing it and kept doing it. And then it, it ends up being something that no one has ever seen before, not because it's a crazy not because like no one would have thought of doing it, but no one bothered to take it this far. And like, all you have to do is keep making, keep making deliberate choices in a direction. And eventually you will get to the thing that only you can do. Sure. That's very interesting thoughts right there. Any advice from you, Kevin? I would say that if you're say in school or if you're, if you're relatively young and you're trying to figure out like what career path to do, I would study something that really interests you and that you love instead of potentially going the like game design program route or like even, even programming necessarily. Um, Because basically everyone that works with us on the game, it is, has a weird background. Like they're not, they're not necessarily, people with computer science degrees or whatever they're they're like i have a degree in philosophy and theater right i i have like i have always just followed sort of what interests me and that will potentially lead you to the the place where you could make games um as part of that um yeah and i and i have a psychology degree you know it's uh, like and and i think that like we all Especially and, with comedy, like you want to have a body of of mm. other things to be able to draw on to make jokes, and I think that's true for everything. I, th- I think it's honestly you benefit from that. Yeah. Not ju- not just a, you know, Riff Riff went to college for graphic design, yeah. and all he does is write. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so it's uh, you know, it, yeah. I I kind of I always get a little nervous when people talk about college game design programs because I've never met anyone working in the industry who came out of one of those. And I'm not like, I'm not going to say like, oh, these are scams or they're a waste of time or whatever, because like, you know, go to college for something that you like. Like, I'm not, I'm not, you know, not going to try to stop you from doing that. But it's like, I always think like, "Mm," you know, I would kind of rather, if I were going to hire somebody, I would rather hire somebody who got a degree in some weird thing and then learned how to make a game on their own and, and made something than somebody who got a degree in making games, but doesn't necessarily have any cool games to show me, you know, that's, which, but, you know, I mean, definitely not, I definitely don't want to rip on, on games and programs. Cause like I have definitely met a bunch of people from say like, like the NYU game center program that are doing cool things. Oh yeah, that's true. I guess that's true. I, I, I wasn't really thinking about that or like even like DigiPen. Like, I guess we know a lot of people who went to DigiPen who are, who are working now, but um, yeah, but generally like your local, your local community college game design program, like you'd probably be better off just taking some of those classes while you've got an associates in something else. Yeah. Um, at least, at least, you know, to my old man's yeah. reckoning of it. 
Yeah, hear, hearing and seeing more instances of that, like Nintendo themselves have said, they go for people who didn't exactly uh, get trained in that and stuff. And some people who never even played games before, right? Because they're gonna they're the ones that are gonna have these fresh perspectives, you know. Like I'm super excited just to to, to drag on that for a little while to for the Nintendo Labo thing, the like cardboard oh, stuff. Yeah, like, that seems so cool. And it's not for everybody, you know. People can like deride it if they want, but it's just such a a weird thing. And I'm so excited that it's going to exist, right? Because that just opens up the possibility for like making all of these weird kind of cool interactions. And once that's out there, people will start will be un- be able to understand how that works. And then somebody who like likes to tinker with stuff and and make you know robots can suddenly make a game for Nintendo or something and that's <laughs> great you know I'm, that I'm, that's the kind of stuff I'm super excited about yeah i'm excited for the the robot suit because it's there is there's like some pulley system going on in there mm-hmm. and a kid seeing that that might be their first instance of seeing like a pulley system yep. yeah. and it might give them ideas like i'm excited totally. for things like that for kids so got ended here is really really interesting talk i this was great you guys were pretty good uh, pretty great. <laughs> um, so it was busy podcast. I uh, hope everyone got a lot out of this. I got a lot. Of this. this was, this is pretty fun. Uh, so if you do not know, just look up King of Loathing or West of Loathing, like King of Loathing, you can play for free. Uh, you can play right now. It's really, I, I find it hilarious. It's very enjoyable. Uh, West of Loathing, you can find that on Steam on, you said, uh, iOS, uh, no, it's, it's, not, it's not, out, not out yet on anything other than oh, Steve and, and okay, God. Okay. We're just, yeah, we're, we've just been sort of slowly struggling through those oh. ports. <laughs> and uh, I would assume trying to get on Switch as well. And we'll see. Thinking about it, yeah. Other places. Okay. So my bad. So it's only on Steam Correct. right now. Okay. Yep. So my bad on that one. Because when you started saying like, oh, I didn't know that. I was like, oh, well, yeah, it's, it's not out. <laughs> it has taken us much longer than we expected to to build that port and to the point where it's not even done yet. Yeah. So. Okay, but it's something to look forward to if you're an Apple user then. Yeah. Well, that's good news there. And so, uh, anything besides King Loathing, less than Loathing, you guys feel like need to be plugged before we head out? Well, hey, you can listen to our podcast, oh, yeah. Video Games Hot Dog, oh, yeah. at videogameshotdog.com. <laughs> it's it's me go. and Kevin and Riff and uh, Jim Crawford, the, the fellow who made Frog Fractions. Really? Yeah, pretty good oh, show. That's- that is interesting. Yeah, because uh, when I was looking at Kim Loathing, I saw this apology. I was like, okay, I should hear this. Did not have the time to hear it before this, but I definitely want to check it out. So I will hear that at some point. So yeah, there's a podcast as well, everybody. So this is this is it. We had basically a podcast with me, Lascarf, and with uh, Zach Johnson and Kevin Simmons. And thank you guys for being here. Hope Thanks for having all us. Had fun. <laughs> Hope you all had fun watching and listening. Thanks for coming by, and see you all next time.